This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 59. In this episode, I'm going to tackle a question that I've been asked by non-medical people about private health insurance. Now, for all the medical people that are listening to this podcast channel, you may want to just skip this episode because a lot of this is going to be summarizing what perhaps you already know. I've just basically gone through the private healthcare system as simple as I possibly can make it for the average non-medical Australian, because I get asked this question all the time, usually on Facebook or private messages, hey, Devraga, is private health insurance worth it? Now, let's tackle this somewhat very controversial issue in this episode um, and why is it controversial? Because there's been plenty of news coverage uh, in the media about private health insurance, um, particularly with regards to how expensive it is and how the out-of-pocket expenses can pile up very, very quickly, particularly if you need a surgical procedure. Now, disclosure, for those of you that don't know, I am a healthcare professional. Um, I don't work in the private sector, but I have in the past. Uh, but I'll try and stay as objective as I possibly can. And uh, the short answer to this question is, it depends, okay? So if you want to skip all this episode and just skip this altogether, the answer to the question, is private health insurance actually worth it? Well, it depends. And we'll delve into the specifics of it uh, by going through some of the summaries of the health system in Australia. Now, before we dig into the main topic, let's revisit the main premise of this podcast channel. The aim here is to educate yourself about personal finances and learn about personal finance topics so you can make decisions armed with the, some of the most basic knowledge um, that um, you can get your hands on. And my podcast channel has been free, will hopefully always be free for the end user. It's fair to say that if you were to probably uh, research, um, you know, a bit about buying a brand new phone or a computer, TV, or even a car. Um, if you're going to do research about those items, it's really important to do your research then before you put your hard-earned money into personal finance projects like insurance, uh, mortgage repayments, expense management, investments, superannuation. But surprisingly, hardly any Australians look at this in any great detail. In other words, they basically, you know do more research about buying consumer items than doing research about where to put their hard-earned money. Now, I find this very, very interesting. And I think part of the reason for that is people automatically assume that personal finances or those topics are actually quite difficult and quite complex. And I think part of the problem also is that the financial industry 
kind of make it sound all complex. But when you break it down in a nutshell, it's all about spending less than you earn and saving money and investing it and repeating that. So let's look at a five simple steps which anyone in Australia or anywhere in the world can do right now in order to stabilize their finances, okay? Step one, always pay yourself first. Try and save 20% of your after-tax money and pay it to yourself straight off your salary. Step two, invest that money. Invest it ideally in a broadly diversified index fund or property or whatever that you understand. You don't need to invest it in the share market if you don't understand it, but invest it. Do something with it. Don't speculate with that money and don't put it in a savings account and let it earn you know, negative interest rates in some countries at the moment. Step three, always reinvest the dividends which you receive from that investment. Never cash it out. Never touch it. Pile it onto the original investment. Let it grow. Step four, do it for the long term. Um, and do it for, I think, at least 20, 30, 40, if not 50 years. Now, if you're a 15-year-old that's listening to this podcast, in 50 years' time, you're going to be 65. That's when you're going to retire, hopefully, or hopefully earlier than that. And you'll be amazed. Just go to any compound interest calculator and just put in just 100 bucks a week or 100 bucks a month and do it for about 50 years and compound it at the average annual rate of about 7% and just find out how much money you'll retire with And that's assuming you never get a pay rise. It's just an amazing thing. And doing it for that long term and starting early, it's absolutely critical. And step five, my favorite, is always try and automate it. If you did this over the long term, you're likely to end up with more wealth than you ever imagined possible. Now, remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring you happiness, but it gives you options. It gives you option to help yourself but it also gives you the very, very auspicious option, in my, you know, in my opinion, to help people around you. Now, um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is I get a lot of questions um, about, you know, I've got a few thousand dollars, um, you know, should I invest it in, you know, a index fund one, index fund two, index fund three, and just split it all up. I think it it really depends on how much money you have to invest. You know, if, it, if it's anything less than 10 grand um, and, you know, spreading it out too thin, you might actually not see the benefits. So I think it's worthwhile talking a little bit about the power of focus. So to reverse that, uh, forget about investment for a sec. Supposing you have debt, um, I think you should roll your money into one debt based on the debt snowball or the debt avalanche, whatever system that you use, and you must use a system. You can't just randomly, you know, roll your money into various debts without actually having a system. So come up with a system, use it, and roll all that money into that one debt. Whatever spare money you have, including the minimum payments, just roll it up into that one debt. And the power of focus means that if you focus your energy and your heart into that one step, then you're going to get it done much, much more efficiently. You're going to get it done much, much more quickly. Um, If you try and spread the love with all the different debts or all the different investments um, with small amounts of money, you're not going to make a big dent dent into that um, debt reduction or investment. So, you know, to give you an example, if you're going to buy a house in the next sort of three years, 
and you want to save up that 20% deposit to avoid the loan mortgage insurance, then save up money like crazy. Save it up, put it into a savings account. I wouldn't invest it in stock market for those three years because you don't know where it's going to go. If you're going to do it for over 20, 30 years, then yes, stock market sounds good. But save up the money, every little cent. Save it up, put it in the bank, and just focus all your energy into doing that. And the chances are you're going to be much more successful. Um, And if you look at the financial coaches um, and other podcast channels, they talk about the power of focus. Um, So Chris Hogan talks about it all the time. He's part of the Ramsey Network, which I listen to, which is he always says, I'm focused, but I'm not finished. You just laser focus on that one target and hit that target. Once you've hit it, then laser focus on another target and hit that target. Once you've hit that, keep going and going and going and going. And the chances are you're going to be hitting a lot of targets in your lifetime, whether it be personal targets, financial targets, or you know even your own career targets as well. Now for the main topic, private health insurance. Is it worth it? If so, why? And if not, why? Now, for again, just it's going to be a bit boring for the health professionals that are listening to my podcast. So I would probably skip this episode. I don't think you're going to learn anything new. But um, I think for the non-health professionals that are tuned into the podcast channel, probably worthwhile listening in. And also for the overseas listeners, I think it's reasonable to listen in because you'll find out what the Australian healthcare system is like and how the private insurance here works compared to um, other countries, mainly in the United States, which healthcare is a massive, massive topic. Um, so first of all, if you ask the average Aussie what they think about healthcare, hopefully the response about healthcare will be that one, every Australian deserves up-to-date healthcare at a very high standard. And number two, this should be provided at the least intrusive way in terms of cost and that's overall cost as possible. That includes public health and private health. So generally speaking, Australians, you know, we are, you know, um, uh, we, ha- we have a link in with the, uh, with the UK and, and Great Britain and all that sort of stuff. Generally speaking, most Australians believe in universal health care. That is, if you front up to a public hospital in Australia, it doesn't matter what age, uh, man, woman, what gender, um, doesn't matter what religion, what creed, what race, what ethnicity, we believe that you should get the best possible care that we can provide at point of care would be free. Okay, so yes, it comes off the taxpayer's money and all that sort of stuff overall, but most Australians love and adore their public health system, and that is a combination of federal health system, uh, which is Medicare, etc., and also state health system, which is what funds the public hospital systems in Australia, okay? So you'd be very hard-pressed to find, you know, most Aussies to sort of not like that system because we believe in the fair go and we believe that everyone deserves the right to healthcare, okay? Now, compare that to our North American colleagues, particularly the United States, um, where a lot of their people don't believe that everyone has a right to free healthcare. And there is this big political campaign going on for the 2020 US presidential elections. And I think the Democratic primaries are underway at the moment and they're having debates. Um, And you have a look at Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, and also Senator Bernie Sanders, who believe that healthcare is a right. Uh, But then you have other people that say, well, no, that's not actually true. Why should I subsidise your healthcare just because 
you have fallen sick. And then there is a huge paradigm there where basically it is slowly shifting. I think people are looking at other countries, um, countries like Australia and Scandinavian countries, most European countries, Western Europe especially, and saying, well, if those countries can do it and provide universal health care at lower cost, why can't we, you know, so-called the richest country in the world? And therein lies the, the huge discussion point that's happening in the United States right now. But in Australia, we're lucky enough because we already have a system that protects the vulnerable Australians when it comes to healthcare. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. It's not perfect, but it is a system that works when um, when it works extremely well most of the time. Um, it's not foolproof. And like any system, it has its weaknesses. And as Australians, we need to support and uh, we need to protect it because I think if we take these things for granted personally, this is my personal opinion, if you take these things granted, then eventually they get eroded over time. So, um, again, so most Australians in Australia believe in, you know, quote unquote, free healthcare. That is, point of care healthcare should be free in a public hospital system. Now, the Australian model has two main healthcare systems the public healthcare system and the private healthcare system. Okay, it's worthwhile learning a little bit about both healthcare systems, um, especially if you're an Australian listening to this, because I think you'll be surprised. You'll learn a few things here. The public hospital system, or the public healthcare system, beg your pardon, has one the hospital system, which comprises of an emergency department, uh, where they have various departments, um, where they do operations, they have outpatients where they employ doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, administrative staff. And the hospital is run just like any other company, and these are funded by the state um, health budgets, okay? The second tier of public health system is a community health care system, what I call the community health care system, and that is your general practice, um, which, you know, is, is sort of, you know, technically public health care system because it's not really state-funded. It's actually funded through a federal program called Medicare. Then you have the specialist who you see as outpatients in their in their in their in their um, uh, uh, in their rooms, uh, and also this particular system, the community health care system, which is partly sort of quote unquote rebated or subsidised by the public taxpayer, you can end up having an out out of pocket expense, and I'll go through that in more detail. So you know when you see a GP or a or a super specialist who's non procedural then you may end up paying, paying a fee for seeing that particular doctor. The third arm of the public health system in Australia, which a lot of people don't realise, and I think a lot of Aussies don't give a lot of credit to the system, is actually called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. It's a wonderful system. And again, if you look at what's happening in North America, where a cost of an EpiPen is like 600 bucks or something like that. An EpiPen is something for the non-medicos and healthcare professionals on this podcast channel. Is something that is life-saving when someone has a allergic reaction or very severe anaphylactic reaction, okay? So we have a lot of peanut allergies and uh, asthma-associated allergies, et cetera, or atopic conditions in Australia. And a lot of people carry EpiPens which is subsidized, and you can actually get it privately here for about 80 bucks, but you can actually get it publicly funded through the PBS system, okay? There's also the dental system, which, uh, again, a lot of people don't get credit for. There are public dental systems available in Australia. Uh, personally, I, I don't think they're great. Um, there's a huge waiting list. 
Um, the costs are, are very, very cheap to see a public dentist, but you may end up seeing a student or a training dentist as opposed to a fully qualified dentist, or you can actually go privately and see a dentist. Now, if you go to see a private dentist, and of course, that's not covered by the public health system. Um, so, and of course, we have a very, you know, I think we have a very generous um, and good public dental system for children. Uh, particularly when they're toddlers and four-year-olds and five-year-olds. And even at school, they have a public uh, dental system at schools in Australia so that we know that most kids here get some sort of dental care. You're not left on your own. Now, the private healthcare system. Um, now, there's two systems here. One is that if you have no private health insurance and if you are very, very wealthy, you're going to just pay everything for yourself. Okay, that's called self-insured. Um, and you can do that in most other countries as well. You can just pay the doctors and nurses or whatever you want, um, and that's because you can afford to do that. There are not a lot of people in Australia that would be game enough to do that because healthcare costs in the private sector in Australia are rising. The second way of getting private healthcare system uh, and try and get into that is getting what's called private health insurance for hospital cover, for in-hospital treatment, or extras cover for allied health treatment, such as dental, optometry, physio, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it depends on, depends on what you want, okay? Now, if you choose to go private, if you choose to have private health insurance system, in the past, every health fund that you join up with, so we have big funds here called Bupa, we have uh, Medibank Private, um, we have smaller companies like AHM or NIB, et cetera, they will have their own policies. That's how it used to work, and every sort of company will have different policies and have different inclusions and different exclusions. So you really had to go to a broker or do a lot of research by yourself to find out what the basic inclusions and exclusions are. And of course, a health cover that you choose to get in company one, let's say Bupa, at a moderate level may have exclusions and inclusions which are completely different to the healthcare that you may choose to have through Medibank Private. So when you're switching to try and get equivalent cover can be quite complex. So um, I believe from 2020, and I think this is already underway, um, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, please message me. But basically the Australian government said, well, this is all just too complicated for the average Aussie. And to be honest, as a doctor, I struggled when I tried to switch health insurance. So even for me, it was just so confusing. And I used to think, oh my God, if it's so confusing for me, what is the average Aussie going to do? They're going to really, really struggle. So they just basically said, let's just dumb it down to about four separate policies. Okay, the basic policy, which avoids the Medicare levy surcharge, and I'll talk about that. Um, I'll talk about that a bit later in the podcast. The bronze cover, which covers about twenty-one clinical categories, but avoids joint replacements, back, neck, spine services. And there's silver cover, which covers twenty-nine clinical categories. Um, dental surgery and heart-related services. And there's gold cover, which covers pregnancy, joints, and most things, except maybe cosmetics, depending on the company. And that just simplifies things. There's four basic coverage points. Um, and they have you know standard inclusions and exclusions with um, special bonuses based on which company you sign up with. Now, the thing about private health insurance in Australia is that you can only use it for hospitalized treatment. Okay, so and you can only use it for inpatient care. Inpatient care means you're an admitted patient. So you can't use private health insurance in Australia to see your general practitioner. 
because that's part of the sort of federally funded Medicare system, which is part of public health to some extent. Um, you can't use your private health insurance to go to a private emergency department because if you don't get admitted, you just have an ankle sprain, they will treat you, they will bill you, you pay up front. The private health insurance company will not cover you because you're not an inpatient. You've just gone to an outpatient emergency department. They've done the x-rays. It's not a fracture. It's a sprain, rest ice, compression, elevation. See you later. And that can be quite costly. And it can be up to $300 to $500, depending on you know the doctor fees, the, 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 the nursing fees, and the x-ray fees, etc., etc. Okay? Now, in the, in the 90s, what happened was the private health insurance system in Australia was expanded. And they said, okay, well, we need to try and encourage people to go to private health uh, because the public system is kind of getting overloaded. And what they did was they introduced what's called government subsidies for private health insurance. In other words, if you're a customer and you want to go privately, then the government said, well, we will help you um, and we will give you some subsidies. And over the course of the years, there's been additional subsidies and rebates offered to that customer. Okay, or you can just go publicly, go to the public emergency department and get your ankle sprain looked at. Uh, it'll be completely free, but you know the public hospital system is getting crowded. There's significant immigration. There's population expansion. Australia is a huge country. We're very urbanised, so to get a doctor out to rural areas was very difficult. Um, and even to get a doctor out in metro areas in some parts of metro, and I live in Melbourne, one of the biggest cities in the world, um, is actually quite difficult. So depending on your income, they said, we'll give you three different types of subsidies, okay? So depending on the income, the government can give you up to what's called a 30% private health insurance rebate of the total private health insurance costs. In other words, if your monthly private health insurance rebate was $100, then you will get a $30 rebate. So your actual cost for that health insurance premium was only 70 bucks. So... The legislation says in Australia, you can earn up to $180,000 as a family to still get the full 30% rebate on your insurance premiums. I know a lot of you that are listening from the United States are just going, oh my God, that's crazy. You earn 180 k and still get government subsidies. Now, 180 k in Australia is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. It's huge amounts of money, but it's not the same as earning 180000 in America, where it probably travels a lot further because our cost of living here is extremely high compared to your cost of living, particularly for our American friends that are listening to this. And um, but, but really, I looked it up, and you can actually earn as a family up to $280,000 a year and still have some sort of rebate applied. In other words, the more you earn up to $280,000, between one eighty dollars and $280,000, you'll get some sort of a rebate. And that just basically tapers off as you earn more and more. And if you earn more than $280,000, then basically um, you don't get any rebate. And I guess most people in Australia would argue if you're earning you know, or more than a quarter of a mil as a family per year, then you probably shouldn't be eligible for any rebates. But there you go. The second subsidy is age-based discounts. So if you're 18 to 29 and you're listening to this podcast, you may be eligible to discounts for your private health insurance premiums. The idea being to encourage you to get private health insurance. Why? Because it takes the load off the public system. That's the thinking. And also, you need more healthy people to compensate for the claims made by the more unhealthy or older people. So these cohorts 
the older people are more likely to claim for their insurance. And of course, this is what's happening in the United States where the private health insurance premiums are just crazy high because they don't have the system of getting younger people to join. So um, now if you are 18 to 29, the highest discount offered is 10% for 18 to 25 year olds. And then it tears down to 0% if you are 30 years of age or older. Okay, and like any other insurance scheme, the more people join insurance, the cheaper it becomes for everyone, if that makes any sense. All right. Now, the third subsidy is called the lifetime health cover loading. This started in the 1st of July 2000. And if you joined it before, you will not pay higher premiums as you age greater than 31 years of age. Or if you bought out health insurance before the 1st of July following your 31st birthday. This is called the lifetime health cover uh, base day. Okay. So basically if you're, you know, about to hit 32 before you hit 32 on that year, the 1st of July, you need to get private health insurance. Now, if you don't do it, if you miss this lifetime health cover base day, then basically if you want to sign up for private health insurance later in life, then expect to pay 2% more per year on your premiums as you age, because as you know, as you age, you're more likely to get sicker and more likely to use private health insurance. So there are some exceptions. Uh, there are some exemptions which apply. So new migrants, uh, they're exempt. So they have a limited period of time to join in, even if they're above the age of 31. Or if you're an Australian who's been living overseas as a child, and then you enter after the age of 31, you have a limited time in order to get the lifetime health cover loading. Okay, so those are the three basic government subsidies that you may be eligible for. So if you're hunting for private health insurance, then these are the rebates you need to be aware of. Now, there are some other definitions which you need to be aware of. I think it's worthwhile discussing that. The first definition is the days of absence. Now, for your healthcare professionals that are listening to this, you may not be aware of this, so it's probably worthwhile listening to just this bit. I know I said just turn it off before, but it's probably worthwhile. The days of absence means switching health insurance um, to cover gaps. So what basically you can actually have up to 1,094 days of no cover throughout your life, not at any one time, but it's cumulative throughout your lifetime without your lifetime health cover loading to apply. So if you're switching health insurance, et cetera, and you want to cover those gaps, you can have a few days here and there off without health insurance before um, you get penalized for lifetime health cover loading. And the total number of days you can actually do that throughout your life is 1,094 days, which is about three years, which is quite a long time. The second type of definition you need to know is called suspending your health insurance. Now, this does not come under the days of absence rule. This is completely different. For example, if you're traveling for three months and you want to suspend your private health insurance, because why would you need private health insurance if you're traveling for three months? Yes, it's possible. And it doesn't come under the um, uh, uh, days of absence rule. But the insurer must agree to this. So you need to actually have it in writing from your insurer to actually agree to this. And this has nothing to do with the government rules. The insurer may say, no, nah, we're not allowing you to suspend your private health insurance too bad. And that's too bad. But most insurance agencies um, in Australia would allow that, particularly if you're traveling. And the third type of definition you need to be aware of, we talked about this briefly earlier, it's called the Medicare levy surcharge. Now, in Australia, to help with the public health system and the rising costs, all Australians pay a 2% Medicare levy on top of their usual taxation, okay? 
So there's a Medicare levy surcharge, which varies between 1% to 1.5% on top of that 2%. And that depends on how much you earn. And that also depends on whether you have private health insurance or not. So basically, the government's saying if you earn above a certain threshold and don't have private health insurance and not taking advantage of all the help that we're trying to give you to try and offload the public system, then we will penalize you another 1% to 1.5% of your total earnings. So what are the thresholds? If you're single, if you earn more than 90000 or if you're a family and earn more than $180,000 and choose not to have private health insurance, then you get charged a tiered system of 1% to 1.5% extra in tax called a Medicare levy surcharge. And this goes towards the public health care system. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still a good thing that you're contributing to society per se, to the public health care system, and not to yourself, you're putting it into the pool of the health funds. But this is a bit controversial because many private health insurance have capitalized on this tax by encouraging people not to pay more tax, but instead get something for themselves in return by way of private health insurance. So they're saying, why pay an extra 1% and 1.5% tax? Why don't you pay the 1% to 1.5% to us? We've got you know policies that fit in exactly in that threshold and give us the money, and we'll cover you privately, okay? So a lot of these private health insurance companies have capitalized on that. Now, therein lies the problem, because in the past, private insurance company A may be providing a service to sort of capitalize on this, but their policy might be absolute junk, Uh, whereas private health insurance company B, who's doing exactly the same thing, but their policy might be better. So how do you differentiate? For the average Aussie, that was actually quite difficult to differentiate. It was a bit of a minefield. So this is why the government has now introduced the basic bronze, silver, and gold packages for private health insurance schemes, okay? Now, what about pre-existing conditions? Someone from overseas asked me about this recently. Thankfully, in Australia... You are covered, okay? And what that means is you must wait 12 months if you get private health insurance for anything pre-existing. And after the 12 months, you are covered. So let's say if you've got a bit of arthritis in your knee and you want to go private, you can sign up to a private health insurance company and pay your premiums for the top-level cover and get your joint replacements covered. And after 12 months, they'll say, yep, we'll cover you for a joint replacement. So it is in your best interest to see a surgeon in that 12 months and get them to put you on a list in their private list as soon as the 12 months ticks over. So in Australia, no matter what your health condition is, generally speaking, private health insurers cannot deny you cover. In the United States, totally different. You can get denied if they remotely think you've got a pre-existing condition. Now, again, to me, that's a foreign concept. I'm not trying to bag our North American colleagues, but to me, that's just a crazy concept to be denied health insurance for a pre-existing medical condition, which you may not have contributed to. So, you know, if you're born with a particular cardiac deficit, it's not the baby's fault they've got a pre-existing condition. But in America, they may say, sorry, we're not going to cover the baby's, you know, ventricular septal defect or whatever it is that they might have because it's called a pre-existing condition. In Australia, thankfully, they can't do that for babies, okay? So basically, in fact, when you're pregnant... Um, they will cover you, they will cover the unborn baby as well, even though the baby is technically not born. So does private health insurance limit you then to who you see or which hospital you get treated at? Not really, 
okay? But the costs may vary. The hospital networks tend to have agreements with insurers, so it may affect your out-of-pocket expenses called the gap fees. And some doctors have an affiliation, not a business relationship because that's actually illegal. In other words, in Australia, an orthopedic surgeon can't get kickbacks from a private hospital just because they're doing their joint replacement surgery at that hospital. That's illegal. But some doctors have an affiliation with a hospital network, and this is called a no-gap cover. In other words, I could be a surgeon and I could have a link with a particular health insurance agency like Bupa, and I'll say, okay, for all Bupa customers who have operations with me, or any special operations with me, I'm not going to charge anything out of pocket. That is called a no-gap scheme. Now, if you go to their website for Booper or whatever the health insurance you may have, you can actually have a look at which specialist um, has a no-gap. So a lot of patients may actually hunt around for such specialists because the out-of-pocket expenses um, are significantly less, okay? Now, Let's now follow the journey of a patient who requires an operation in Australia and let's see how it can be offered in the public or private sector. Now, for the purposes of this, let's use an urgent medical problem like cancer. So supposing you have symptoms of cancer, and I hope you don't, you visit your GP and the GP consultation fee is, let's say, $80. The government sets a rebate of $37 if the consultation was less than 20 minutes. And the out-of-pocket expense, therefore, is 80 bucks minus 37 which is $43. So the out-of-pocket expense to the patient is $43. Because remember, the GP system is not completely publicly funded, only partially through what's called Medicare rebates. Now, some doctors may choose not to charge an out-of-pocket expense. And that's completely fine. They only charge the rebate, and that rebate charging is called bulk billing. This is what bulk billing is. You go to the GP, they don't charge um, the patient any out-of-pocket expense. The patient decides to transfer their rebate, not take it themselves, but transfer it to the GP or the practice that owns the practice for providing that service. Okay, so if you bulk bill someone in Australia, it just makes the healthcare more affordable. Okay, this is a huge controversial subject in Australia, even because the politicians want more bulk billing services. But of course, just because you get bulk bill doesn't mean you get great service. Okay, so again, you've got to be a bit careful about this. So, uh, and of course, if if you if you get bulk billed and 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 you get you know free healthcare at the point of care then the theory or the discussion point then becomes, okay, well, you probably won't value your health and therefore you'll turn up to your GP for, you know, simple stuff and cost the health system a lot of money because it takes up time for the GP to accommodate your appointments and then see you. And of course, their remuneration is your rebate. So there's a bit of a controversy there, okay? Now, the GP looks at you and orders investigations, x-rays, blood tests, etc. Most of these investigations in Australia are bulk billed by private companies, but this is not always the case and they don't need to be bulk billed. It all depends on where they get your scans done, who does your pathology, whether it's done through the public system or the private system, and even if privately done, some of them also bulk bill, Okay. And then you return for the follow-up visit to the GP and the GP may choose to bulk bill you because it's a follow-up visit or may choose to charge you another 80 bucks depending on what sort of GP you have, what the practice costs are, etc., etc. And of course, they diagnose you with the cancer, unfortunately, and you get a referral to see a specialist. Okay. Now, at this point, you have a number of options. 
You can be asked to refer to the local hospital with public outpatients where there's oncological or cancer services, but there can be a bit of a wait. But for an urgent medical problem, usually there isn't a lengthy wait and usually you'll be seeing what's called a Category 1 patient, particularly if they're worried about cancer or if they're worried about something very, very urgent. Now, what I generally do for my patients, if I'm really worried about a patient, I just give the unit doctor a call. In fact, I did that today. I had a patient who had a really nasty fracture. Um, and I said, look, I've reduced a fracture. It's all sorted, but he really needs plastic surgery. And I want you to see this young boy tomorrow morning. And the registrar said, sure, no problems. Um, send me the details and we'll tell him to rock up at eight o'clock tomorrow morning at the Plastics Outpatients Clinic. The clinic is super overbooked, but that's okay. We'll accommodate him. That is free for the patient. Okay. I don't charge the patient anything. And if they go tomorrow to see the plastic surgical team, which is a registrar or consultant, whoever it may be, uh, for their fracture, for the finger, it is free at a big local hospital in Melbourne. Now, um, you could do that if you wanted to. Now, if it's a life-threatening diagnosis, obviously, then, of course, you'll be referring the patient to the emergency department. So that is option number one. They'll get admitted at the emergency department. There is no cost to the patient. Uh, the patient gets treated just like any other patient in the public health care system. And, you know, our public institutions in Australia are global world leading. So if you've got anything serious, my general inclination is to refer the patient to the public system because the facilities, the research, the specialty advice, expertise is second to none. Now, the option two for this patient, who's now unfortunately been diagnosed with cancer, they want to go private because they've got private health insurance. You give the referral, the patient books an appointment with a private specialists and pays a fee. Okay. Now, the specialists in Australia can charge whatever they want, just like a GP in Australia can charge whatever they want. Now, if you really want to know what the average cost is, the Australian Medical Association has a list of fees that they recommend that specialists or GPs should be charging. But of course, this is all just a recommendation. Um, and the reason usually why specialists charge a little bit more is because it takes a little bit more time to train as a super specialist in Australia. So if you want to be, you know, like a neurosurgeon or something like that, it'll take you, you know, up to 10 years to do one uh, to become a neurosurgeon. It's actually quite competitive. But also, a lot of these specialists are sole specialists. In other words, they've got a practice manager, they've got a practice uh, receptionist, whereas a lot of the GP clinics in Australia are not sole GP centres. A lot of them have group practices like four or five. But of course, nowadays I'm finding in specialty land, a lot of these surgeons and specialists are actually having group practices because it affects uh, how they cover each other for annual leave and all that sort of stuff, okay? But yes, there are some specialists who do bulk bill in the private sector. Then you see the specialist, you get consented and you get booked into a private hospital and at the point the surgeon then gives a quote for the operation. Now, if they're affiliated with a particular health insurance provider and you've got the health insurance provider or the health care network, then basically it can be a no-gap solution. In other words, the specialist may not charge a gap fee. Okay, but if you're not and the specialist doesn't want to be part of a gap fee and they don't have to be part of a gap fee scheme, they can charge whatever they want and you'll get a rebate back from the um, from the private health insurance, which gets transferred to the specialist. And of course, you'll need to pay the difference. And this goes the same with other specialists like anaesthetists who need to be involved because, of course, they need to give you the gas in order for the operation to proceed, etc., etc. Now, 
In addition to that, so you've paid the specialist, you've paid the anaesthetist, you've paid the surgeon. In addition to that, in hospital, if you need any x-rays or pathology services in the private sector, then there may be associated fees. And you will need to pay what's called a copayment or an excess upon admission. An excess is basically, you know, 250 bucks or 500 bucks or $1,000, depending on what excess you chose when you accepted to have the private health insurance. So you can see how there's a myriad of options in Australia in terms of public versus private. Um, and you can see that if you went private, then there's actually quite a complex system. Now, if you're not a medico, if you're not a nurse, if you're not a healthcare professional, this can be quite complex. And hopefully this has simplified it as much as it possibly can. Okay. Now, I guess the question is, why is there an out-of-pocket expense when you go private? And why is it all different with each specialist? Well, it depends on the specialist's costs. If you're a specialist and you're in downtown Melbourne and your office rental space is expensive, utilities are expensive, you've got whiz-bang machines, ultrasounds and things, that, you know, maintenance is expensive, you've got to pay your indemnity fees, which is expensive, that all contributes and that all costs the surgeon or the specialist money. And of course, they're in the private sector, they're there to provide a good service, and that's why their costs may be higher. Or at the time of diagnosis with your general practitioner, you can say, look, um, I don't want to go private. I want to go to the public healthcare system because I think I've got a very serious condition and I think it's best that I go public. And that's completely fine. Okay. Now, there is a little bit of a dodge here in that you could potentially in Australia have private health insurance and never have to use it because you just keep going to the public system. The public system doesn't care. It accepts you're poor, you're hungry, you're rich, you're whatever religion or race or whatever it is or gender. It doesn't matter. You can still have private health insurance in Australia and not use it. And I guess, what's the point of that? Well, some people feel that that's a bit of a security for them uh, because in the event of something happens and the public health system is chockers, etc. Um, you know, I actually had a, you know, a, a bit of an issue today where I tried to get a lady who who was a very nasty sort of, uh, you know, surgical condition and the public hospital was happy to take this. said, sure, send her along. It wasn't really urgent. It wasn't life-threatening, but she had private health insurance. So I asked her, do you have private health insurance? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, well, I can ring up a few private surgeons and see if they want to take on your condition. And yeah, it was easy. I just rang the surgeon. Yep. Pop in tomorrow morning and we'll get it all sorted out. And the patient preferred that. And of course, there is a bit of an out-of-pocket expense for that patient, but that's okay. They're happy to pay that fee because they value that service. But if they didn't want to do that, that's okay as well. You can go to the public system. The public system doesn't discriminate. It'll treat based on the emergency and based on the need. You might not get caviar with your meals, but you will get top-notch healthcare in the public sector in Australia, particularly if you really need it. Okay? So, this is where it gets a bit tricky. Which system is better? Uh, and why have private health insurance system if the public system can accommodate pretty much everyone? Well, it all comes down to what you want to achieve with your insurance, okay? Remember, insurance is not a profitable proposition for the customer. That's you. Insurance, if you have car insurance, you don't want to make money out of that car insurance. You want car insurance because you want to reduce your risk 
of out-of-pocket expenses in the event of a car crash. It's a safety mechanism, okay? So insurance in general is a losing game. So is it worth private health insurance? Is it worth having private health insurance? Well, overall, the, you know, the odds are against you making money out of this. This is not an investment. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope you have life insurance. Uh, and if you haven't listened to my insurance episode, uh, one of my you know, first 10 episodes are worthwhile going back and listen to it. But I hope you have pri- um, sorry, life insurance, but I hope you never die because <laughs> that's when you want to use the life insurance. And, you know, it's one of those safety nets. So um, the aim of, you know, the aim of private health insurance is, you know, if you want to get timely care and if you've got a sort of a non-urgency problem or a, a cosmetic problem or a pregnancy problem, etc., whatever it is, which is all elective, then yeah, private health insurance may make sense to you. But if something is life-threatening or urgent, you will still be treated uh, at no cost at a public hospital. And if the local public hospital can't treat you because they don't have the services, then they will accept responsibility and get you the treatment you need through another hospital. Okay? Um, So let's do some calculations. From a money perspective, emotions aside... The average private health insurance premiums in Australia, mid-level for a family of four, is going to be about $300 to $400 per month. Now, this can vary depending on the health insurance and what type of cover that you have. I'm talking about an average sort of silver cover. Okay, this is for hospital insurance. Supposing you don't. Supposing you don't want to have this insurance. You want to invest that money. Okay, at an average rate of return of 8% and doing it for about 40 years, about 400 bucks a month, is going to get you about $1.4 million at the end of 40 years. But you've got to be pretty confident you're going to be healthy for those 40 years. You're not going to get pregnant. Or you've got to be happy and satisfied with the level of service that you receive at a public hospital. But in Australia, we're lucky enough to have choice. But we're also lucky enough to have a safety net. So in the event that you have a major, major, major life event, then the public healthcare system here will, you know, support you through very, very difficult times. It's not perfect, but it is a safety net. Okay. Now, what do I do? Personally, I have private health insurance for me and my family because I did some calculations. We've got two kids and it would have cost us about thirty to $35,000 in private uh, fees had we not had insurance and gone private for our pregnancies and the babies. Okay. But as a result of private health insurance, and I got in relatively early, um, before age 30, well into that, as soon as I got out of medical school, I got private health insurance, um, with very minimal out-of-pocket expenses, we're very lucky to have had two babies in the private sector without you know, significant out-of-pocket expenses. So with my current premiums, which are actually very, very good because it's a very old policy, that is around 8.3 years of premiums that have gotten benefit out of just by having two kids in the private sector. Okay. Now we've had private health insurance for a little bit longer than that. Um, so I've been a doctor now for about 12 years, I think. So I've had it, uh, for about, uh, that time and really for about, you know, four years worth of, uh, premiums, I've actually got about eight and a half worth back. If that makes any sense. If you did a cost analysis, you know, I've got about 8.33 years worth of premiums out of having two kids, and I've only really paid for four years worth of premiums um, and for a total of 12 years worth of coverage, if that makes any sense, okay? So if you believe in choice, 
then private health is good for you and your family. Uh, if you're happy with the public health care system, and in Australia we have a great public health care system, one of the best in the world, then it's okay not to have it. Okay, If you front up to an emergency department and you are dying, you will get care as best as possible. Okay, So again, it really depends on what you believe in and what sort of level of cover you want, what's your affordability, uh, what your pre-existing conditions are, because there might be a 12-month wait for that. Um, and whether it's an elective procedure or an emergency procedure, etc., etc. Okay. Generally speaking, my recommendation for this is make this decision early in your life before the age of 30 because you get a lifetime healthcare loading uh, uh, exemption. Um, so you can avoid that loading exemption in the event you change your mind or something happens in your life and you need ongoing healthcare. Okay. And I hope it doesn't happen, but you know, bad things happen, unfortunately. And trust me, I'm in the business of trying to help people that have had bad things happen to them. And mostly, it's through no fault of their own. So, again, coming back to the original question, is private health insurance worth it? It depends. I've done my calculations for me. I think it's worth it for me and my family. Um, but it may not be worth it for you. And there's a lot of talk and you need to do a lot of research and understand it. So... Until next time, make sure you stay safe, research about your current private health insurance if you've got it, or if you're under 30 or over 30, do some calculations, see if you'll be benefited if you took that money and invested for the long term. And of course, like all things in life, stay healthy because it's insurance. You don't want to get sick. I don't want you to try and make money out of private health insurance, okay, because it's a losing proposition. I know that over the 30 years that I'm going to have private health insurance, or 40 years, I'm going to lose money over time. That's not the point. But I still exercise. I still try and eat as healthy as possible. I don't take unnecessary risks. Um, I've got two young kids. I don't take unnecessary risks. So when it comes to lifestyle and health, take care of yourself. Now, hopefully this hasn't been too boring. It's a little bit to do with personal finance, but it's not you know, the nitty-gritties of personal finance. But I've just had a fair bit of questions on Whirlpool and on Facebook about private health insurance, and I thought for the non-medics to try and simplify it as much as I possibly can. This is Devraka Personal Finance, episode 59. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much for all those questions and comments, and thanks for your support. And until next time, stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 